Frank, if there is one thing that I love more than writing mobile apps, it's integrating into a third-party RESTful API. Oh, and by thing you like the most, you mean the thing that I dread the most? Cool. Yeah. Are we talking about that? Yeah. You know, sometimes you get to control your backend of your application that you're building, and then sometimes you don't. <laughs> um, uh, Actually, I, I prefer when you don't. Do, do you? I, I'm curious where we're going to go with this, but I, I just want to interrupt there. I love it when there's just an API to work with. Then life is good. Well, that's a, that's a good starting point for this conversation because, yeah, half the time when I go to build my own backend, then what do I have to do? Oh, I have to build my own RESTful service. I have to build a database. I have to worry about API management, credentials, OAuth. <laughs> what else you got to worry about? Like login. It's a whole thing. It's a, it's a well, whole thing. And I don't like just that. Just maintaining the server. I don't even mind the dev time. Dev time is fun. I like setting up servers. I just hate, you know, logging into them, backing them up, dealing with, yeah, all the security issues that always crop up, updating versions. Yep. All those things, you know. But there's trade-offs, right? Because... The trade-offs here are that when you manage the API and you manage the backend, you are in the one in control that says, hey, I'm going to turn off this part of the backend or I'm going to change the version of the backend and discontinue version two because now we're on version three. <laughs> and you get to then craft how restful it is. I was talking to Heather recently and she was telling me how just because there's a REST API doesn't mean it's really 100% RESTful or really <laughs> architected correctly. So you, you're the one that gets to, to pick and choose. And I believe sure. that's, that's the downturn of the public APIs that as you evolve, you want to become more stringent on what the RESTful APIs are. So you may make breaking changes, you may adjust things here and there. So for me, I think the, the trade-off is that one, I don't have to maintain the API, but then at the same time, since I don't get to maintain it, it can change whenever it wants to, and I'm not in control of it. Yeah, and actually, you, you kind of hit a good one there. Um, it's, it's easy to maintain the versioning of your own API, especially if you're doing lots of integrations of things. But, you know, recently I was bit by the Dropbox version one to version two change. And by recently, I mean over the last two years. But, you know, it's still I still run into it from time to time. Oddly enough, I find little bits of code or little bugs introduced because of the API switch. Um, that was annoying <laughs> having to deal with um, that happening. And that's just one integration. If your app has, you know, 10, 20, 30 integrations, I bet you this is a full-time job of just tracking other people's APIs and how they change and how you communicate with them, either via client libraries or, you know, lower level. Yeah, you're then at that point deciding, like, how much time do I get to work on my application compared to just the integration part of it, like you're saying, and that becomes a struggle. Well, I guess your application is the integration at that point. <laughs> I think you, you're kind of a middleman at that point if, if you're jumping to a bunch of integrations. But I think the more common scenario is, as we were talking about, is you, you have one data source, essentially, maybe a few other little random ones, but one data source. Unless you wrote an RSS app, then you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, that becomes the beauty of it when, so this is a great jumping point. This was not planned at all in our show notes at all. I swear, <laughs> uh, because when you think of the world of RSS, it's kind of, a 
there's a whole bunch of different hybrids. You have like this pure RSS, you have this Atom feed, you have different versions of RSS. And then you have these RSS feeds that have like spiced up like stuff for podcasts. So like our RSS feed has the Apple stuff, has the Google stuff. It's all just jammed in there. And I had to, for Soundbite FM, I had to create the RSS aggregator and I use blog monster, which did a lot of the work, but I had to do a bunch of custom work to do a bunch of custom things for podcasts that aren't standard RSS. And that's where I believe the beauty of rest comes from. You know, I've worked a lot in the past with WCF. I've worked a lot with, um, O data calls. Mm. Uh, and at the end of the day, we've sort of agreed that JSON is a great format for data. I mean, we've we've kind of agreed. We're not 100% sold on it, but we've come to a general conclusion that it's okay. And we've also just, I think, decided that, hey, like a REST API, we can standardize on how we can get and post and update and delete data on the inner sphere of the internet. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's pretty good uh, in general compared to these proprietary formats. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's how I feel about it. I think it's a good step. Yeah, I think, I mean, Jason's proved itself just because everyone's pretty much adopted it. it there, there's XML and JSON. We, we can't forget XML because you just can't avoid it. I was writing something pretty modern and recent and it had an XML file, configuration file. It's like, oh yeah, I remember this. And so, you know, the, the two are still left. I do remember um, a Miguel thing. Uh, Twitter post where was it? No, no, he was presenting somewhere and he was saying uh, he doesn't like JSON because it's not efficient, and so he would prefer that you use more efficient um, serialization formats, that kind of stuff. You know, this is all kind of separate from the REST API issue. This is just the data transport. How are you sending data between um, queries and posting data and that kind of stuff? But I've been kind of. <laughs> You know, I want to say I'm into protocol buffers because I am. Uh, these are the binary format made by Google where you have a rigid schema and it, it generates um, efficient code to serialize that schema. I like them because they are super efficient, uh, compact, and it is kind of a standard data form format. Even though you can define your own schema, you can read... Um, a schemaless version and you just don't get names for things but you can roughly figure out what's in there so it's a nice kind of format and that one's taken over quite big in the uh, machine learning world and so i'm starting to like that more now the reason i hesitate is none of my apps that i've actually released use them so <laughs> so far it's just been more of a fun learning thing well you know when i look at standard XML, let's say I have a person Well, there's a person and then there's some attributes inside of it, like name and email. I'm looking at the protocol protocol buffer and it looks pretty similar to JSON. I mean, it's not that far off. Am I correct? Oh, they'll even serialize to JSON for you. That's what's Ah. kind of fun. This is uh, more of a data declaration language, almost like the declarative part of SQL, where you're just defining the entities. And then it generates, there's multiple libraries for it, but the default Google one will generate your C, uh, C Sharp classes. It'll generate all the uh, serialization stuff. There's a little dependency on a .NET standard library to handle some of the boilerplate junk mm. that it does. But it can uh, it can do JSON or it can do uh, its own cool format. There, 
there's one other neat feature about it that I kind of love and we'll, we'll talk about in terms of REST too is uh, versioning. And it handles that very well. As someone who writes apps that I love to continuously add features to and things like that, I love that it very strictly and elegantly, a little annoyingly, but still elegantly handles versioning very well. Yeah, I'm looking at it here in the binary format, which seems very simplistic because at the end of the day, I'm making a RESTful service call. Or I'm, I'm making some service call to say, go give me my people. And I don't actually care how that data is returned nope. to me. Like, just give it to me, right, at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and I can yeah. tell you how, how, you know, ideally, if things are structured correctly, what I care about is that I can say, give me my person and I only care about these three properties, right? Because I don't right. want all of the data. I want these little itty bits of it. And I don't care how it's coming across, but it seems like protobuf you're saying is a more optimized uh, transmission mechanism. Exactly. And mm. you can use it for data storage or data transmission. It's kind of great for both of them because you kind of want versioning in both scenarios. So, uh, and like I said, it's efficient. It's not using reflection or anything at execution time. So especially on mobile devices, it's a, a good safe bet to use. Mm. Yeah. 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 I just see help. a little, see a little NuGet library here, google.protobuf. Yeah. Uh, huh. And then is it Mark... Gravel is, I don't know if I'm getting that name right. He has uh, a super cool one where you don't even have to write the schema of the, normally with protocol buffers, you write a protocol definition file where you give the schema of all your data. And from that, it generates all your C-sharp stuff. Well, Mark made it so that you can just use C-sharp attributes in your code, kind of like SQLite-net. And it just magically at runtime generates all the code that it needs. The trick is I'm not 100% sure how great that works on iOS. I haven't tried his library there. It's something I've meant to do for a long time. That's pretty cool, though. I like that. Now, at yeah. the end of the day, though, you still have some sort of RESTful service API this is calling. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is just data transport here. Nothing, nothing too special here. I mean, you could... So put your message in the data but mm. i think in the end you want to design a more specific rest api i see got it yeah and i've been you know falling in i fell in love with rest apis because when i was creating meetup manager which you know is my long-term age-old application <laughs> that i've talked about a thousand billion times on this podcast i went to go update it recently and i did a live stream on my twitch channel where I was going to update this application to the latest version of Xamarin Forms, the latest version of Donna Standard, just the, the hot new hotness. Mm -hmm. And after about two and a half hours, Frank, of updating just the core file structure, you know, converting things to package references, converting to the newest Xamarin Forms, getting everything compiling, it was a pain in the butt, but I got it there. I go and I get it onto my device. I log in, like I totally logged in just fine, yeah. which is pretty cool. And no data was returned. There's no <laughs> data. And I go, um, excuse me? Yeah. And I look at the exception that's thrown from my HTTP mm -hmm. call, and it's a 401 error that I'm not authorized or it doesn't exist anymore. And I go, hmm, that's strange. Yeah. And I go to look, and this has been a while. It's been a year and a half since I updated this <laughs> app or even tested it. Okay. I just assume that everything works. So I go and look at the Meetup API, 
and oh. they are no they are no longer on version two, which has now been deprecated and removed, and they are on version <laughs> three. Whoops. Oh my god. Yeah. Boy. These version things stink, huh? <laughs> Dealing with yeah. it. Don't now, you wish things would just work for eternity? Like once it works once, it just works forever. Won't life be just different then? Yeah, where's my backwards compatibility layer? Why you be breaking me? The yeah. the peculiar part here is that not everything has moved to version three, by the way, just most things. And the big change is only the URL. So only the URL changes. Okay. And and the data structure changes just a little bit, Frank. <laughs> so previously, it would send you an object that had a list of meetup groups or a list of members. So now, instead of having an object that has a list, it just returns you the list of users. So like that's the change in the APIs, like one less object, and that's it. Everything else works the same. So I I fought and I struggled to understand like how are they changing? What are they doing? And I'm you know fiddling around. Yeah. I'm going to quick type <laughs> and I'm deserializing and serializing all this JSON, which I'm I'm in this happy world of like ma- making RESTful calls. It works in the browser. I can convert JSON to C sharp really easily, so I can compare and contrast. It was just mm-hmm. this little tiny change, right? <laughs> that breaks my entire application. So absolutely nothing works. Now, I don't know when that happened. I feel very bad for all my users. And I promise that I'm going to update my application for reels. But it seems like this is a relatively big problem when you're integrating with all these different services that aren't yours. Oh, Lord. Also, this just kind of speaks of programmers with a little bit of OCD, like, did they really have to change that field? What field? Be, be specific. Do you remember? I'm curious. Oh, so it was just literally. Um, so I'd have to go to the Meetup API okay. page, <laughs> but well, it was I, it, it literally changed from like API.meetup.com/slash/to/slash/groups to slash/self/slash/groups, and like that was <laughs> that was legitimately basically it. Oh, okay. So in that case, it sounds like they're clearing some namespace, but then they used a giant hammer of switching switching the version number. So that's pretty crazy. I think this is the case where they're like, oh, uh, as long as we update the version number, everyone will be fine. That idea is fine as long as version two runs for all of eternity. But like, yeah, you can't deprecate it in one year or two years, whatever they did, and then uh, kill it. That's just... Ugh, it makes our jobs harder. Well, are are, are we whining? Is, <laughs> is a two-year change in an API too much or too little? I don't know. It just it's seems like say. a lot for me. Yeah, it's hard to say for me. I want to always focus on the app and updating the app. And I guess this is updating the application. So for me, you know, I, I think I'm not mad. I think I'm a little perturbed about the messaging because i didn't really know about it i I unless it's buried in some email somewhere uh, or maybe or maybe no one's using my application and i've ignored the one star reviews for so long um but but at the same time now this is hard this is a hard problem of apis that change where if we talk about architecture i am in theory um you know pushing out an update now to this application that changes a little bit of data structure and ends up changing uh, the URLs mostly to get this data back. Mm -hmm. But 
in a world where I controlled the back end, I could just update the back end to return the data correctly. So what this brings up for me when I started to change out this API was, should I start to build my own shim API on top of their API, Frank, such as using Azure functions to do serverless compute. So instead of hitting their endpoint directly, do I hit my endpoint, which hits their endpoint? And this is a question I wanted to ask you how you feel about that. Ooh, uh, just gut feel. I love it. Love where you're going with this. Um, so I, I guess you would start with, let's fast forward into the future and you've implemented all this. And then they move on to version four and the API breaks again. Yeah. So you're still going to have a broken app, even with your thing, because its integration will have failed. The, the theory here, I guess, is that you could have your app send you an email or somehow notify you in a more forceful manner than Meetup accomplished. Would that be it? But I, I want to not make that the whole issue here, because in general, I do love the idea of wrapping other people's APIs so that you can control the interface. And I think serverless is especially the right way to go so that you're not dealing with you know, server maintenance, the thing I yeah. hate the most in the world. <laughs> well, I think about it such as this, which is I could create some sort of trigger or some sort of event that monitors the failures coming from that Azure function, which to some effect could be, you know, better or worse than the mobile app. Cause the mobile app could contain a whole bunch of different exceptions and errors, but this one could focus just on the failures of the RESTful service calls and serialization. And then if that was triggered, maybe I get an email about it. Maybe I get some Azure notification like, hey, this thing is failing all the time. And then all I have to do at that point is update my Azure function to you know hit the version 4 API, but return version 3 data in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, I love it. Yeah. The other nice thing about it is that you can use it as a little bit of a caching layer in that um, a lot of services have throttles on them, especially if you don't want to pay for the service or you don't want to pay a lot for the service, then it gets throttled. And if you gave every user an API key to that server, then if you got a billion users, then you're going to go through that services uh, API limit pretty quickly. Whereas if you're going through a central server and you put on a very heavy layer of caching so that you're not hitting, you know, the, the eventual API endpoint, then that's a nice feature. I've had to do that in a few places. In fact, that's how uh, Fugit.org works, essentially. It's channeling and caching a bunch of calls to Nougat.org, but doing it with very aggressive caching so that it tries to limit all its traffic out. Hmm. I like that's a good idea. And I was going to ask you about Fugit too. I was just over there the other day trying to figure out exactly how you were doing some of those nice caching mechanisms. Before we get to that, Frank, let's take a quick break. Let's thank our good friends over at Syncfusion. Frank, you know Syncfusion. I do. And I love all their controls. Yeah, you do. I love their stuff too, because it enables me as a developer to be super productive. Frank, when was the last time that you ever wanted to create your own charts, graphs, data grids, all sorts of things like that? Have you ever wanted to do that? 
Mm -hmm, Definitely when I was 16 years old, but I'm not 16 years old anymore. And I really don't want to put all that energy into it ever again anymore. Well, good thing because Syncfusion has you covered. They have over a thousand components and frameworks for WinForms, WPF, ASP.NET, including WebForms, MVC, and .NET Core, UWP, Xamarin, JavaScript, Angular, Vue, and React, you name it. They have beautiful UI components to suit your needs. And in fact, what I love about it is that, yeah, you don't have to create these things. They've done it all for you and they've optimized them for each platform. So no matter what you're building, they have something for you that you're absolutely going to love. And it's not only just charts and graphs. They have great support for different file formats, such as PDF, Word, and Excel, and an entire data dashboard system. So you can map your entire application and backend and feed the data into beautiful charts that are generated for you automatically. So where do you go to learn more? Well, Frank, I'm telling you right now, go to your browser. Type in syncfusion.com. I want to hear you type syncfusion.com slash merge conflict. I have a beautiful silent Apple keyboard, but there it is all in black and blue. I see it. <laughs> there you go. And now you can learn about all of the beautiful controls by, of course, going to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict. Thanks to Syncfusion for sponsoring this episode of the pod. <laughs> the pod. Is that what we're calling it? Well, <laughs> Yes the pod okay and i should have said it's mostly blue i don't know why i said black and blue it's blue and black <laughs> what is your your keyboard the website no oh. the sync fusion come on sir they got some blues they got some purples they got some grays it's a very attractive site yeah i need to make mine look better <laughs> yeah whenever i go to websites um they make me feel bad about my own website <laughs> yeah yeah it's good. It's a healthy kind of guilt, I think. Let Syncfusion do it for you. Yeah. So, so you were curious Frank, about caching, huh? I am curious about caching. So I have in the past on ASP.NET Core, I think they have like their own little caching server caching thing that you can do and cache calls or cache some data for a little bit. That's about yeah. the extent that I've done. What else have you done? Uh, well, we should be clear. There's t- two kinds of caching you, you talk about on a web server like this. One is HTTP caching, and that's where you put all the right uh, e-tags and cache control headers on all your responses to everything. Um, I think I do most of that right. <laughs> but the real caching that I was talking about was caching web calls, REST calls to, in this case, the NuGet service, which is an OData service, oddly enough, because that's going to going to introduce some things, mostly because I've completely forgotten how to use OData. There was a time in my life where I knew OData, and I could write the queries, and I, I understood it. That time is long past, it seems, and it took me a long time to get used to uh, the NuGet API. But essentially, it's just a bunch of REST API calls with their own cache control responses on the HTTP responses, and so you can cache them. Or you can completely ignore those headers and just cache them anyways. And that way, um, everything just stays in memory. I'm not uh, serializing it all to disk. So if the server reboots, it has to redo all this stuff. But that keeps the server very um, agile and allows you to put multiple front ends up if you want and not have to worry about synchronizing to a database. Little benefits of in-memory caching. 
Now, you mentioned OData. I have yeah. also used OData with like DubCF and some soapy services, some soapy OData DubCFE services in the past. And I didn't not like OData. Is it was there is there anything intrinsically wrong that you ran no. into with it? Um, no, just mostly that the query language is kind of terrible and I can't remember it. I just wish they'd just gone with SQL because it, it's essentially the same query language. It's just written in a funny syntax, but they'll argue that it's actually different because you can do relational queries and things like that. I actually loved OData so much so I wrote a generic OData browser for iOS. It was actually an app. It's not on the store anymore, but it was for a short time. And you could just give it any endpoint and just browse the data. It was it was fun. Hmm. I, I think, uh, there, there's one other point, and this this will come up um, when we talk about GraphQL. That some people don't like Go Data because the queries are open ended, and people could potentially uh, query your database in a way that's very inefficient and perform basically some kind of denial of service attacks by basically just eating up all your performance and i guess that's a little one reason oh data didn't quite take off in the whole universe yeah that that makes sense i you know the thing that saved me with the o data was i was able to use link queries to generate my o data queries for me i'm pretty sure oh, yeah. this is how this worked back in the day if i remember it's been a while but you're, you're absolutely right, and I completely mm -hmm. forgot about that. I wish we had had this conversation a year ago. <laughs> this was like the saving grace of OData and WCF because if you were to look at those queries in a uh, URL form, they're very crazy or they're very complex. Unlike a RESTful service, just normal JSON-y you know, RESTful call, which if they follow a standard, you can kind of just hit the, hit the endpoints and get them. But they're very complex and... How I would end up doing them is you could even join things. You could do a bunch of things like that back and forth. And at the end of the day, it just, you know, you can just pass this link query to the OData provider and it just goes and makes the query for you. You don't have to worry about it. And that was, a, that was to me, was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I'm just kicking myself right now. I'm going to go rewrite a bunch of code because that is really awesome. And I'd completely forgotten about that feature. I have to go dig up some libraries and see uh, who's doing what. Or I'm curious. <laughs> I have to go back into my old app and see how I used to do it. I wonder if <laughs> I use that service or anything like that. Good times, huh? I remember uh, accessing Netflix. Do you remember the Netflix mm. used to be an OData source? Did you ever yeah. hit that one? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. It was a, it was a age old like sample data app that you could be like, I'm going to make a Netflix browser, you know? Um, I love that sample. It, it was such a great data source. Like mm -hmm. there, there was so much to be learned from it. And I, I wish it was still up. They took it yeah. down, right? Yeah, they took it down. Yeah, at this point, as far as I know, correct us if, if I'm wrong, listeners. But yeah, I think you had to do something where you're building a WCF service and that provided the O database data service. So it was like the combination of the two together um inside of this i'm gonna put some links into the show notes for for anyone that wants to go implement a dubcf data service in 2018 uh but it, it did really impress me because i remember just creating these queries letting it go 
and maintaining them was quite quite simplistic. But then I remember you would hit this SVC the orders. It was like you were passing it a uh, of, of lambda function almost, which was really crazy. Uh, <laughs> and it was a beautiful wacky thing, but you had to generate the schemas. It was very kind of complex at the end of the day for when you just want to return stuff. And I remember the biggest gripe that people had was that it was everyone would say it was heavy. That's a heavy. It's such a heavy request. Uh, and I don't know if it was or not, to be honest with you, or if we would still be saying that in 2018 that, oh, that was a heavy request compared to 10 years ago when I was making mobile apps, you know? Uh, you know, in terms of raw bike count, I don't think that they're so bad. There, there's definitely some wonderful overhead that they introduced in like result sets and catalogs and because paging is built into it and it's, it, it is kind of resty because it has hu- hundreds of URL endpoints that'll pass around to you. But I think, so when you talk about heaviness, there's that transport heaviness, but I think also there's the implementation kind of heaviness. You mentioned the link queries on the client side is pretty nice, but what was the server burden to run an O data source? You still had to, like you say, define a schema. You still had to wire it up to an actual database and all of that. And the benefits of this generic query interface, people are like, well, I would rather actually control what people can hit and see and control the caching of it and all that kind of stuff. So that generic interface that it provided, maybe it wasn't as useful or not useful enough to justify its existence and all the ceremony that had to go along with it. Yeah, that was probably the main issue. And the probably the backends were very Windows based, so it probably wasn't very cross platform at the time. And uh, is my assumption there too. And the world ever, slowly turned to to rest. Did you ever run an OData server? I never did. I don't even know what was involved, to be honest. Uh, it wasn't very hard. You could you could spin up a WCF service, which was hosting the OData service locally. So the very first app that I made at Seton was um, um, My Media Center, this application. Mm-hmm. And My Media Center, we would run a WCF service on the windows machine and your device would communicate to your pc that would be surfacing up this o data feed to the mobile applications via the wcf service yeah so what we would do is inside of visual studio you could say generate your uh, generate your models really you would create your shim layer which would be your um, WCF services coming from the OData feed and you would point it at the service running locally and it'd be like, cool, I got, I got all the data, almost like entity framework in a way. It's just like, just mm-hmm. here, just go do it. Uh, and it would dump all that out. And then from those models, you could generate your web request calls and then anything that you needed. And every time you would update or if you versioned it, it would be a little bit tricky, I believe, to kind of figure that out. I don't remember at this point, I'd have to go back in time mm. to remember how we, we did it. I think as long as you were always additive, as long as you're always additive, it wasn't a problem. It was only if you were yeah. removing things, which you should never do anyways. But um, uh, uh, that would protocol be buffers. Idea. Protocol buffers are the same. You, you're supposed to add things. I guess you could deprecate things, but yeah, you never actually delete them. Mm-hmm. As in your meetup problem, <laughs> they deleted that field. They deleted Terrible. it all. So, 
so I, I, we're going to not mention soap, right? Soap and all the other web service stuff that existed <laughs> in the early days. We're, we're, no. we're going to skip all that, right? Let's talk to the future, <laughs> Frank. Let's talk to the future. We started <laughs> in 2012 <laughs> with this little thing from Facebook, a small startup, small mom and pop uh, shop called Fake Facebook. Um. They created this thing did called you call Gr- it fake book. What did you call it? Facebook. Facebook. F- okay. Fake, 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 fake book. You can do this, James. <laughs> the the Facebook. The small mom and pop shop called the Facebook. Do you remember when Facebook was the Facebook and only colleges could get onto the Facebook? Yeah, I think I caught it still at that tail end when you still had to be in college for it. I can't remember, but I I got on it just around that time. Yeah, I guess. You know, every social network's fun when it's empty and it's just your friends. It's when the the world joins and you're like, oh, need a new social network. (laughs) This is this is a valid point. I was listening to the tech meme ride home. Frank, do you know about the tech meme ride home? No, I don't know anything about this. Tell me. You should definitely be listening to the Tech Meme Ride Home because it is a daily podcast by our good friend, friend of the show unofficial advert of Tech Me and Ride Home, Brian McCullough. You know Brian McCullough? No, but welcome friend of the show, Brian McCullough. Brian McCullough, I believe, works at Tech Me, but he also has a lot of different ventures and he's quite a lovely individual. So it's it's like 10 to 15 minutes of tech news every single day. Uh, and he was recently kind of talking about the evolution of social networks, which is to your point, social networks are great when they're small and you're your own. And he was talking about Snapchat and how they want to go back to the basics of being the best way to only communicate to your friends, not to the world necessarily. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you, you always have the pressure to open up to the world and that's just where things get tricky. But I think maybe it, it's funny. It seems to be the modern thing is, no, I just want small, tight social groups, not large ones these days. But Facebook talking about trying to adapt. So they have all sorts of (laughs) clever things to create multiple worlds like this. But I remember back in the day when Facebook had an API and then they changed to this crazy thing called the Facebook Graph API. And that was weird. And now all of a sudden the whole world is GraphQL, you're telling me? I've heard of this thing called GraphQL that sits on top of the graph. Uh, I, you know, um, people have had conversations with me about GraphQL and the, from what I understand is that it, it sort of sits on top of your existing RESTful endpoints to help you evolve your APIs easier, but also query your APIs easier. So instead of sending a long URL or sending um, a de query in your URL, you specify this graph query. So the example they put on graphql.org is let's say you have a bunch of heroes. So it's almost like a JSON request and you would say hero squiggly name space, I don't know, height space <laughs> mass, and it would return that JSON result to you. So it only returns the data that you need with a structure that is simplified. Unlike, you know, when you think of making a RESTful service call, a straight just REST call, you say you have to have the support built in where you're going to limit the results 
um, and you can pass in like what you want to take and you want to take, oh, I want to take the ID and I want to take the name and I want to take these things and they're comma delimited. Whereas in this instance, you're sort of creating your own little JSON that is specifying the query um, that will go to and from. It's kind of my understanding, at least. So that could be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I read a whole book on this, and yet I'm still having a little bit of trouble remembering all the details because I haven't had to actually use this in one of my apps. I did like it, though. Um, it does attempt to solve that problem you just mentioned of well that we were mentioning of odata where you could just make generic queries to a database there was no limits to it if you could imagine the query you could throw it at the odata source whereas graphql they you have to be more declarative in what you allow in all your queries so you can definitely limit the data to different subsets say you know this is uh, this is only allowed to access these kinds of tables that kind of stuff and i think just for addressing that problem it's pretty nice and it does it in a, a nice declarative simple way where you can it is an object oriented kind of data store it has a somewhat concept of references but it's it's simpler <laughs> i don't know how to say it and you you declare what's allowed which is probably the biggest security and performance benefit mm. well, i guess that's all mostly in javascript libraries so how does it extend to other? I know it supports a bunch of different languages, but are they really first class or are they half baked? Or, you know, when I think of working with RESTful service endpoints, it's kind of universal. And when I think of working with WCF or OData, like there's very specific C sharp clients with that. But is there anything fully baked for GraphQL? I. I, I think so. Well, I, I should say that I think that the raw underlying protocol, like the actual HTTP requests, are pretty basic themselves. So you could write your own client library without too much fuss. I think it can even communicate using J JSON and things like that, automatically serialized. So I think from that perspective, um, it's somewhat easy to interact with i find the trickiest part again is um it, it's not itself a database so you still have to put a server with a database up somewhere and relate the calls its query interface into actual database actions you know actually hitting real data on the server side so if you're from the client side i think things are pretty nice and simple but on the server side you still have a bit of work to do mm. It, it kind of reading through some of the documentation, it feels as though if you're using GraphQL and then if you're using all of the helper things around it, like, oh, I'm using the server backend, I'm using the easy database integrations and I'm using Relay and I'm using React and I'm using all the things that were built in and around GraphQL, then like I'm a happy developer. But if I'm not using those bits and pieces, then I'm not necessarily a super happy developer. Yeah, when I first looked into it, I was like, oh God, so I still have to make a database. Like that, I, I just don't want to do that. Flat, simple, period, full stop. But then I finally read up some more. And I believe if you're in Azure, for instance, and you have table storage, I believe you can get a GraphQL front end to that table storage. Mm. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I know for a fact there are some data sources on Azure that will present a GraphQL front end. And that's nice. Um, 
so but like you said you, you're building up an ecosystem there otherwise you have to write those data bindings yourself so it is a world where you have to buy in a little bit and there's some taxes to be paid yeah this seems also like a big learning <laughs> that i have to go on top of it <laughs> right know. versus you do um dot net new what did we say web app console i think i'd just say web dot net new web mm -hmm. and then you just start you create a controller and you just start putting some rest actions on it i mean you're still hitting the database you still have to do manual validation it's kind of a pain in the butt but there's lots of attributes and there's lots of stuff built into um, ASP.NET Core these days. So yeah, I tend to just write my own rests kind of from scratch, starting with an ASP.NET Core server because of that. It, it with the word we like to use there, Frank, is turnkey. It is a turnkey solution. Uh, they still don't give you a good database. I'm not a big fan of entity frameworks. I do. I, I don't enjoy that part. I don't understand the migrations part. I have some mental block or I never can run the commands correctly and the code doesn't get generated or the wrong code gets generated. I don't know what I'm doing. I stink at migrations. Someone <laughs> needs to teach me entity framework migrations. <laughs> I, I believe that that is a... Uh... That's in its own category of skills that I will not become a master of, of entity framework of <laughs> migrations as well. I agree. So, but if any of our listeners are masters or have experience with GraphQL, I would I'd be super curious actually what you uh, think about, or if you're using them in your experience, especially as a C-sharp.net developer. But if you're just coming from the JavaScript world, I'd be super interested too. And if you're using it with mobile apps, uh, you give us a, give us a little email, mergeconflict.fm. Let us know. I'd be, I'd be interested. Yeah, this is definitely not a part where I'm a specialist. I can say I'm pretty good at mobile apps, but when it comes to the web, as we keep saying on this show, I am not perfect at it. I'd, I'd rather do user interfaces for the web than, uh, you know, databases and APIs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. We just rambled for 43 minutes about RESTful APIs. Frank, we did it. <laughs> uh, you know... I, I would say something like, I can't believe we did it, but the truth is we'll probably talk about them again. I'm, we're always thinking about REST APIs. Every um, day. It's how the internet works. <laughs> it's how the internet works. Well, thank you, Frank, for uh, for putting up with me uh, in my Boston crazy jet lag state that I'm in currently um, to uh, talk about REST APIs. <laughs> Nailed it. I'd even detect the accent. You totally hit it. Good job. Yeah. Boston, go get myself a coffee. All right. Um, well, until next week, folks, you can, of course, hit us up everywhere online at Merge Conflict FM, at James Montemagno, at Proclarum. Uh, you can also go to mergeconflict.fm to subscribe, get the latest podcasts, and um, give us feedback. Hit that contact button or become a Patreon subscriber. We can get sweet, 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 super sweet rewards. Uh, mail directly to your house from me. I will send stickers and pencils and pins and a whole bunch of good stuff in the mail to you. Um, of course, we would love it if you could rate, subscribe, give us a little review on Apple Podcasts or share us on Overcast. So until next week, this has been another Merge Conflict. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.
Hey friends, thanks for listening to this week's Merge Conflict. If you like this episode, you may love some additional podcasts over on our network, soundbite.fm. You can find the link in the show notes below, but we have amazing podcasts covering all different topics, including video games, travel, and even chess. So check us out over at soundbite.fm. And until next week, thanks for listening.